All right, so we're continuing in, in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is one of what we call one of the three big prophets. We'll, we call them major prophets sometimes. Um, so we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Those are the three major prophets. And they appear in that order, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In our Bibles, as well as in the original uh, Jewish Hebrew tradition, those are the first three, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then in, in the Jewish tradition, those were three separate scrolls. You want me to test it again? There we go. All right, we'll get to the timeline in a second. Um, so they had those three scrolls that were separate, and then all the other prophets were lumped into what they called the 12, because there were 12 other prophets. But in neither of those traditions is that a chronological ordering. So, and that's, well, here's the, um, the timeline. As we've seen this timeline a couple times already, um, and you can see where, so Isaiah is sort of on the, on the left in the left middle there. And you see all these other prophets, you know, Amos, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Hosea, even those are all chronologically, they come before Isaiah. Uh, but if you're just reading through the Bible in the order in which you're coming to them, Isaiah is the first. We're looking at chapter two of Isaiah and because Isaiah is the first book not chronologically, but in the order of the, of the prophets. This is the first place where we see a biblical writer start to talk about the day of the Lord. In those terms, at least. It's introduced here in chapter 2. Uh, and then it's, Isaiah refers to it again and again several times throughout the rest of the book. But before we get into reading the text, I just wanted to ask out of curiosity, first of all, just by raise of hands, how many of you have at least heard that phrase somewhere, somehow before, the day of the Lord? A lot of hands. Yeah, it's just kind of a, a phrase we've, we've heard a lot, if, especially if you've been around uh, church much. But I'm also curious, even if, this, even if you've never heard it before, when I say the day of the Lord, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Just call out any, anything, any words or judgment. Okay, yep. What was that one? Oh, tribulation. Okay. Yep. Justice. Justice. Yeah. So I think, you know, for most people, if we've heard about the day of the Lord, if we've read about it, the day of the Lord is almost synonymous with what we'd call the end times, right? Or uh, the end of the world even. And that's not, that's not a bad thing necessarily. That's not incorrect. You know, if you picture the final judgment and the great white throne and all of the events of Revelation and the return of Christ, that's not an inaccurate picture of what the day of the Lord is. Uh, so I'm not telling you to throw that out, I'm, but I am going to tell you that's an incomplete picture. There's a bit more to it than that. So we're going to get into that today, talk about the day of the Lord. Um, but let's start just by reading through Isaiah chapter 2. The vision that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we, we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. 
They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. House of Jacob, come and let's walk in the Lord's light, for you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of divination from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines. They are in league with foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold, and there is no limit to their treasures. Their land is full of horses, and there is no limit to their chariots. Their land is full of worthless idols. They worship the work of their hands, what their fingers have made. So humanity is brought low, and each person is humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor. The pride of mankind will be humbled, and human loftiness will be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. For a day belonging to the Lord of armies is coming against all that is proud and lofty. Against all that is lifted up, it will be humbled. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up. Against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains, against all the lofty hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against every ship of Tarshish, and against every splendid sea vessel. The pride of mankind will be brought low, and human loftiness will be humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted on that day. The worthless idols will vanish completely. People will go into caves in the rocks and holes in the ground away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. On that day, people will throw their worthless idols of silver and gold, which they made to worship, to the moles and to the bats. They will go into the caves of the rocks and the crevices and the cliffs away from the terror of the Lord and from his majestic splendor when he rises to terrify the earth. Put no more trust in a mere human who has only the breath in his nostrils. What is he really worth? So I'm going to stop there at the end of chapter two. There's, there's a lot in there, and I'm not going to pick apart this whole chapter bit by bit. And chapter two even is kind of a microcosm of the next two chapters that come because they go on, continue to describe this day. And there's a lot of repetition because this most, most of it is in poetic form. So you have a lot of repetition. But it talks about a day. He doesn't call it the day of the Lord yet. He does later on in the book. But he starts talking about this day. In Hebrew, it's the word yom. It's like yum, but with an O, yom. It's the word day. And it's one of the most used uh, nouns in the whole Old Testament. So what is this day, this, this yom of, of Adonai or, or, or of Yahweh, this day of Yahweh? I think many of us, including myself, we've kind of been influenced in our understanding of what this means of the day of the Lord by, by a variety of factors. So, you know, Western historical culture has kind of shaped our understanding of this, and plus church traditions and, and modern popular culture. And it's not that all these influences are necessarily bad. We benefit a lot from those who went before us in uh, establishing today's global church and, and our peers. However, I do think that it's important to recognize that we, have, tend, we tend to have a different way of thinking that differs from how the original writers and the readers of the Old Testament uh, thought. And in some cases, that can keep us from really understanding some of the, the nuances and uh, the, the concepts that were just baked into Jewish thought and Jewish writing. So that's the first kind of hurdle that I'm going to try to 
at least crawl over, if not leap over uh, this morning and just kind of close that cultural gap just a little bit. Uh, but first, you know, just to kind of summarize chapters two through four. So the next couple chapters, like I said, it keeps going and on this idea of the day. And he describes this global event in verse two of chapter two. He talks about all nations streaming to the mountain of Yahweh's house, which is a really cool image. And we're going to come back to that image later on. But then, you know, if you follow the trajectory of that poem, it kind of it starts off with this beautiful image, right? It's a very positive image with people from all over the world coming to God, walking in his paths. Disputes are settled. There's no more war. There's no need for weapons. It's awesome. But then you get to verse 5 in chapter 2, and he starts to address the house of Jacob specifically. So it's no longer this global thing. He's talking directly to Israel And it sort of escalates to this full-on proclamation of judgment against Israel, um, against Judah, her her leadership, and the women in Jerusalem. And and it goes on and on about how terrifying this day will be. And then, once you get to chapter 4, in verse 2, it suddenly switches tone again. It says, on that day, the branch, on that day, to say, he's still talking about that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of Israel's survivors. Whoever remains in Zion and whoever is left in Jerusalem will be called holy, all in Jerusalem written in the book of life. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood guilt from the heart of Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of burning. So you still have judgment, but it's, it's kind of a jarring shift because right before that, you have people dying and being stripped of their glory and wallowing in disgrace to all of a sudden, you know, the branch of Yahweh will be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land will bring pride and glory back to Israel's survivors. So what's going on here? Clearly, there's kind of two sides to this coin, right? We have the judgment, but we also have this hope and this this beauty in the future. And this isn't actually, this isn't so far off from what we saw in Jeremiah, was it? Remember, we covered Jeremiah in two weeks, and Mike covered the doom and gloom aspect of the book, and then I covered the the positive, hopeful, uh, happy part of the book. So we kind of have that here as well, the two sides of, of the same coin. But there's even more to it than that, because by using the word day specifically, Isaiah is tying into a whole concept, a whole biblical theme. And clearly, it points to the future. He's prophesying about things yet to come. And in some cases, these things still today are yet to come. We haven't seen all of this take place yet. So it's not just Isaiah's future. It's also our future as well. But this concept that he's talking about is rooted in the past. And I think it's important to to understand that. It's defined by Israel's history, this idea of the day of the Lord. But before, and we're going to dive into that history, uh, before we do that, I want to bring up two points to just kind of help us peel back the layers of our, our preconceptions and try to, you know, approach this cross-cultural experience um, recognizing that it's an ancient text and it's a different culture. And first of all, I just think it's important to realize that the word day, you know, it's the day of the Lord. Day doesn't necessarily refer to just one singular event. 
It can refer to a singular event. In some places it does, but it can also refer to multiple specific events or a classification event of events, uh, or it can even refer to an extended period of time. And the way the biblical authors wrote, especially in poetry, a poem can be doing all three of those things simultaneously. So he can be referencing something that happened and in the past and something that's happening in the present and something that will happen in the future all in one or a couple lines of, of a poem. It's really pretty cool. It's amazing and clever how, uh, amazing how clever the Jewish writers were in able to craft these intricate stories and these poems that all kind of interact with each other. But having those multiple layers, it's, it's non-linear, and that's not the way we like to think in the way we tell stories and in the way we write and read. It's not so inherent to Western tradition. So we have to just be intentionally open to seeing those multiple layers in the text. And even in English, though, you know, we have the word day, and that has multiple nuances of meaning depending on the context you find it. And the Hebrew word yom, it's the same, it's the same way. Um, again, it's, it's the fifth most used noun in the whole Hebrew Bible, and it can refer to a few different things. It can refer to the period of time between sunrise and sunset, right? And we have that in English. Day is when the sun is up and night is when the sun is down. But it can also refer to a 24-hour period of time. That's like in, in measurement terms, that's what a day is, 24 hours. And it's used also in that way in the Bible but it can also refer to just a general time period. Um, so it could be multiple days or months or years. And in the, we kind of use, we have a phrase in this day and age. It's kind of the same concept. We don't use it that often in that sense, but in the Bible you do see, you know, in the day of such and such king or in the day in which the city was built. Obviously the city was built in more than a day, but talks about a time period. So all of this to say, and I think I have a slide for this, just to cement this. Day, it can mean sunrise to sunset, 24 hours, or even just a general time period. So it can be applied in multiple ways. It can apply to more than one event. And in the Bible, the writers can sometimes be using it in multiple ways, on multiple layers, simultaneously. And so that's just kind of the first little mental exercise, the headspace I want us to be in. Uh, before we dive in. And then, what? Inception, yeah. <laughs> it's like Inception. Uh, the second thing that I want to bring up before moving further is just the importance of archetypes. I'm going to talk about archetypes a little bit later on. We see a lot of archetypes in the Bible, and we talk about them a lot, even if we're not always using that term. But I think it's a great word to describe what's happening in a lot of the design patterns that we see throughout scripture. So an archetype is defined as a very typical example of a certain person or thing. It can be an original that has been imitated or a recurrent symbol or motif in literature. So I think that's a very appropriate word for what we see happening with a lot of new uh, Old Testament narrative and poetry. And one example that we've talked about several times earlier in the year is how we see several Old Testament people serve as archetypes for the coming Messiah, right? So the, the chosen one, the promised Savior 
of Israel. We saw that especially, I think the two that stand out are Moses, when he leads the people out of Egypt, and with King David. And even with Solomon, in different ways, they can each exhibit certain characteristics that serve an example for what the Messiah will look like and for what the people of Israel hoped for in a Messiah. They needed a prophet and a priest and a king and a leader. And in fact, Messiah, the word Messiah, it just means anointed one. And technically, David was anointed as king. It's, um, so, and you have other, many other people were anointed. So they were technically messiahs, but they weren't the messiah. So there's a difference. So the, just being anointed means you're a messiah, but it's different to be a messiah than to be the messiah. So we see that also with the day. You know, there's the day of the Lord. And we can maybe refer to it as the, the capital D, day of the Lord, and small d, day of the Lord. Because there are many days of the Lord throughout scripture, and then there's the day of the Lord. But the day of the Lord is still connected to the other ones, in the same way that the Messiah is connected to David and to Moses. Uh, they have relationships with each other. So I know that's all kind of <laughs> a bit dense, uh, but I think it's important to try to get as much as we can into the, the cultural headspace and the literary context when it comes to these big loaded themes uh, like, like this. So keeping all that in mind, uh, we're going to move on now and just kind of look at the precedent leading up to the, the final day of the Lord lead, and even leading up to Isaiah. So at Isaiah's time, when he was writing this, he starts talking about this day, but he wasn't the first one. It's the first in the Bible in the order of the prophets. But like we saw, Amos came before Isaiah and Amos talked about the day of the Lord. So chronologically speaking, of the prophets, Amos was the first one to actually use the phrase in writing. And we find that in Amos 5, 18 through 20. He says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will be the day of the Lord for you? It will be darkness and not light. And he goes on. Uh, I'll stop there. So Amos is the first place where it shows up if we're looking at it on, on a timeline. But if you look at the way he uses this phrase, clearly he's not the one who invented it because, you know, it wasn't introduced through Amos because he says, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. He's speaking to people who long for the day of the Lord. So this concept was obviously familiar to the Jews at the time. So this is something that they not only knew about the day of the Lord, they thought about the day of the Lord, they longed for the day of the Lord. And of course, Amos is telling them that maybe they shouldn't be longing for it because it's not going to turn out so well for them. Um, but why would they be longing for it in the first place? What were the Jews expecting and hoping for in the day of the Lord? So as usual, to answer that question, we're going to go back to Genesis and look at Israel's story, uh, the history through from Genesis through Kings, really. Um, and by now, I think you should expect to get kind of a mini Old Testament survey anytime we start talking about themes in the Bible, because that's what a biblical theme is. A theme is something that starts in the very first pages of Scripture and, and is continued throughout the rest of Scripture. And that's what the day of the Lord is. Uh, think back to the Garden of Eden. Okay, now, no, we don't see the phrase the day of the Lord here, um, but bear with me here. 
the Garden of Eden was a sanctuary for human life, right? It was an abundant, peaceful garden, and it was set on top of a mountain, and it was a place where God dwelled with the humans, and where humans were called to rule the creation alongside God, and it was a holy place. And Mike talked, I think it was just last week, we talked about the word holy. Uh, It was set apart from the rest of creation as holy. And therefore, because it was holy, God and humans, heaven and earth, were able to coexist and intersect and exist in perfect harmony with each other. But that all changed when the serpent deceived Eve and suddenly paradise was, was corrupted by evil. And when we see evil come on the scene... This is the the important part. What was God's response to evil? Simply put, he confronted it. God confronted evil. And just as we see the pattern of sin repeat itself over and over throughout the rest of the story from that point on, we also see the pattern of God confronting evil as it comes to a head at various points throughout history. Now, God, of course, he was merciful to Adam and Eve. He provided clothing to protect them, and and he promised even to fix the mess that they had made. But in the meantime, they could not remain in that holy space of the garden because they were no longer holy, so they were banished from the garden. They were sent out. Then we get to Cain, their son. After he killed his brother, what happened? God confronted him. He was confronted by God. And again, God had mercy for Cain. He provided protection for Cain so that other people wouldn't kill him. But like his parents, Cain was, was banished. He had to go even further to the east. And what did he do, by the way? He went and built a city. And meanwhile, humanity just kept getting worse until the earth was filled with wickedness, as it says in Genesis 6, 11. So when the earth became filled with wickedness, what did God do? Yeah, he flooded it. He didn't ignore it. He confronted it. This time, you know, of course, it was, it was a very drastic measure. It was a global flood, and he wiped out everyone except for eight people, Noah and his family. He, so he saved a faithful remnant. But even though this was such a drastic measure, you know, it's still an example of God confronting evil in such a way to save humanity from their own self-destruction. Uh, self-destruction and corruption. Of course, as we know, that didn't solve the problem of sin at that point. Um, The pattern of sin continued, and eventually we get to chapter 11 in Genesis. We find people migrating, it says, from the east, coming together and cooperating and developing new technologies. They figured out how to make bricks and construct buildings more efficiently and more big than they ever had before. So how did they put this technology to use? They, they have the brick, and they build a city and a tower. And they desire to make a name for themselves. That's why they did it. They want to elevate themselves to power and to fame and, and security. And they build essentially what it is is a temple to themselves, this tall, tall tower. They are celebrating themselves, and they are aiming to position themselves as the gods of their own world. So what does God do? (laughs) He confronts it. 
and he confuses their language. He scatters them out. So the, the, the confrontation results this time, not in him wiping everyone out. Everyone survives this confrontation, but they're scattered. So the scattering of the people is itself an act of judgment. But there was still the city that they built, and there were still some people that remained in that city. And that city was the city of Babylon. And I know I've said this, I've, I've brought up this idea before, but it's important in seeing these patterns to recognize Babylon, even from its very beginnings with the Tower of Babylon. Babylon then becomes an archetype for the culmination of human corruption. And it's in a systematic, collaborative form. It's, it's people coming together and collaborating uh, to, to build itself up, to be this, this kind of anti-Yahweh, anti human, really anti what humans were called to be, uh, entity. It stands for the opposite of what humans were created for. And I, it's not that the city itself or that towers are inherently sinful. That's not what the problem was. It wasn't that they just wanted to build a tower. Humans were told to multiply, to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, and cities, I think, can be a part of that. It's, it's the purpose, it's the motivation with which they set out to do this. It's this self-kingdom-building behavior that compels God to uh, confront this behavior. So put, to put it another way, the problem with the Tower of Babel, or the Tower of Babylon, um, which is the same word, by the way, in, in Hebrew, the problem wasn't then and isn't now the existence or the development of technology. There's nothing sinful about a brick any more than there's anything sinful about, you know, fiber optic cables and integrated circuits and computers. It's, it's what people do with technology and why they do that with technology. That's where we start to have issues because of just the corruption of, of sin nature. And the same really can be said about power. And you, when you have technology, when you have buildings, that's ultimately what that yields is power, you know, social and geopolitical influence. And that's what they wanted in Babylon. And power can be wielded in a way that honors God and humanity's true purpose. God originally gave authority and power to humans. That was, you know, part of humans' purpose. But uh, power, so power itself is not the problem. It's that, you know, the selfishness and the greed and unhealthy desires lead to a, an improper, perverse use of power for personal gain, to build, each, to build ourselves up, and to tear down others, which is exactly how Babylon is portrayed throughout the whole story of the Old Testament. And this is really true of every empire, uh, pretty much, that rose and fell throughout history. But Babylon is kind of the original because it goes all the way back to that um, passage in Genesis. So for literary purposes throughout scripture, Babylon is used as the archetype for kind of the evil empire uh, that threatens God's purposes and threatens God's people. The God's people, the Israelites, who God established first by bringing Abraham out of Babylon and multiplying his descendants into a whole nation uh, of 12 tribes unified. And Babylon comes up, you know, later again in the story, of course, uh, in several ways. And again, 
Babylon is the archetype for this type of cumulative corruption um, that demands confrontation from God. But in the meantime, we see another kingdom show up first in the story that kind of takes on that role that, that it's a type of Babylon and it's the kingdom of Egypt. We find the Israelites uh, enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptian king in Exodus. So the, the king, Pharaoh, was he felt so insecure about his own kingdom and so threatened by this other people group that he resorted to committing genocide. In his eyes, he was protecting you know, the integrity and the welfare of his own people group and nationality. In his, in his eyes, he was doing a good thing by killing off the Israelites. He was afraid that they would join forces with Egypt's enemies. So he preemptively started killing off their children and subjecting the rest who survived to ruthless slave labor. It's horrible. In his eyes, it was a good thing, but God sees this. It's a bad thing. So what does he do? He confronts it. Uh, you should know the answer by now. You know, it's, it's in keeping with the pattern. Every time, you know, God confronts the evil. And if you know the story of Exodus, you know, he confronts it pretty spectacularly. Uh, it's very dramatic because he brings 10 plagues against Egypt. And they're terrifying. And each one is kind of worse than the last. And you read these plagues and it's, you might think, wow, you know, God's judgment is really harsh and it's scary. And that's true. But also, it's kind of a side note, but it's kind of amazing that God even gave Pharaoh 10 chances to respond, uh, to repent. He gave him 10 chances. You know, in, in today's modern day and age, if we know of a genocidal tyrant who's just killing off babies, that's not really how we'd want our global power systems and structures to respond to that tyrant, right? We just want to take him out as quickly as possible, not give him 10 opportunities to repent. But again, that's kind of a side note. Regardless, God did confront this evil kingdom, Egypt, and he intervened to bring his people out of Egypt. And this whole story culminates when the people get to the Red Sea and Pharaoh is leading Egypt in kind of the last-ditch, desperate attempt to stop them from escaping. And in Exodus 14, we find Israel just trapped at the, at the shore of the sea, and God miraculously parts the waters to allow them to walk across on dry land. And when the Egyptians tried to follow, <laughs> the water crashed back in on them, totally wiping out Pharaoh's entire army. So this was just... From the plagues to this, uh, this moment, it's just this incredible, spectacular show of power. Uh, and it's a mighty act of deliverance for the Jews. And now just listen to chapter, uh, verse 30 in chapter 14 of Exodus. It says, That day the Lord saved Israel from the power of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and believed in him and in his servant, Moses. So it results in them believing in God, fearing God. And we see that phrase or that the word that day in verse 30. So we've seen this pattern 
God's confronting evil, confronting evil, confronting evil. But this is the first time that we actually have the word day tied to this event of God confronting evil. And it, it comes up um, actually before they even leave Egypt in the previous chapter, in chapter 13, right before they leave, they receive instructions for the Passover. Uh, and Moses says in 13.3, remember this day when you came out of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Obviously, it was actually, you know, the next day, <laughs> but it's the day. It's that phrase. It's remember the day in which God brought Israel out of Egypt. It was monumental for them. It was like the, a new beginning. It was the beginning of a new history for Israel, and God wanted them to remember that day forever. So that was a day of the Lord. Even the flood was a day of the Lord, but this is a day, a big day of the Lord It's uh, that Israel was told to remember forever. It's not the ultimate final day of the Lord, uh, but it was an archetypal day of the Lord. This one event, parting the Red Sea and destroying the Egyptian army, is an archetype for what the day of the Lord looks like. So this is the pattern. Oh, there's the timeline again. This is the pattern. Garden of Eden, God confronts evil. Cain and Abel, God confronts evil. The flood, God confronts evil. Tower of Babylon, God confronts evil. Egyptian, Egypt, God confronts evil. Just in case you didn't get it. <laughs> so why is all of this important? Um, other than you know, just being able to simply track that theme, I think, is in itself valuable. Uh, but it's also, I think, helpful in understanding the context of Isaiah and the other prophets that talk about the day of the Lord. If we fast forward in the timeline from Egypt, you know, it's um, by the time we get to Amos, the first prophet who talks about the day of the Lord in writing, um, so the deliverance of Egypt is ancient history. Uh, at this point, and, and Israel is, is way past its prime, too. It's king David, you know, he was an amazing king, but he turned out not to be the ultimate Messiah. Uh, king Solomon, his successor, did pretty great until he didn't, and he basically became a type of pharaoh, uh, and he did not much better than pharaoh himself towards the end, and after him, it just kept going downhill quickly. The kingdom split up, the tribes were no longer unified, and they start gradually getting scattered. Uh, first into exile to the Assyrians, and, you know, not yet in Amos's time, but Babylon is kind of looming on the horizon, we know. So you can imagine at this point, Israel is longing for a day of the Lord, another Red Sea moment where God just swoops in and delivers them from all their enemies and unifies them with his presence. He And they're expecting this day of the Lord they're expecting God to establish them as a kingdom, as a, as a major geopolitical power um, in, in their area, a big glorious kingdom. Because that's, you know, isn't that what God promised to David? Uh, that he would establish his kingdom forever? And then along comes Amos and says, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. What will the day of the Lord be for you? It'll be darkness not light. He's saying, you've got this all wrong, because there will be a day of the Lord, but it's going to be against you, he says. And then Isaiah comes and gives us these three really intense chapters, two, three, and four, about the day of the Lord. And in this case, a lot of it is directed right at Israel. They're kind of being lumped in with Babylon and Egypt. 
And this topic, again, comes up several more times throughout the book of Isaiah, and it's a major theme in the message of, of several of the prophets, and especially in Isaiah. And it seems that these passages were provided to kind of reshape the expectations that the people had at the time for the day of the Lord. So now that we've kind of seen the precedent for this concept of the day of the Lord, you know, it, knowing that it's not just an isolated future event, um, it's a theme that we can see being established leading up to the prophets. So it's not a new idea when we get to the prophets. And we can define this concept broadly as God intervening to confront evil with a redemptive purpose for humanity. So that's my, my broad definition. The day of the Lord refers to God intervening to confront evil with a redemptive purpose for humanity. And remember, this can refer to a past event, a present or future event, although there is one final culminating event that will take place in the future, and I'll just refer to that as the capital D day of the Lord, or the ultimate day of the Lord. So now I, I want to go back to Isaiah and just look at some of the, the characteristics that he identifies for the day that he sees in the future. So there's two major characteristics of a day of the Lord, um, as well as, as the day of the Lord. They are, again, kind of two sides of the same coin that we see. We have the judgment, and we have the hope. So first of all, we'll talk about the judgment first. The day of the Lord is clearly a day of judgment. Now, we've talked about the impending, or we know about the impending exile when Isaiah is writing, Amos is writing. We know that the exile is, is happening very soon for Israel. And we know about, um, you know, Ju Israel goes to Assyria, Judah goes to Babylon, and the Jerusalem falls. And this is all a very localized, or a very specific judgment on a specific people at a particular time. So that's kind of one layer of Isaiah's prophecy. He's talking about the, the immediate events to come on Israel. And most of the judgment in chapters 2 through 4 is directed at Israel and Judah. But we've already talked kind of a lot about that. We saw that in Malachi and Jeremiah, uh, very similar prophecies. And even Jonah points to the exile and obviously, a lot of that is now, in, in, from our perspective, that's all in the past. That's literally ancient history. So I want to bring out instead some of the more global um, judgments that we see in Isaiah and focus a little bit on some of the things that we have yet to see take place. First of all, it's worth pointing out that there will be a universal judgment at some point. That the, the day of the Lord is not only intended just for Israel, it's not Israel-focused. It's, And then that's evident at the beginning of chapter 2 when he talks about all of the nations streaming to, to God's mountain. But it's not even limited to just earthly judgment. When I say universal, I mean universal. And we can see that in chapter 24 of Isaiah, starting in verse 21. He says, On that day, the Lord will punish the army of the heights in the heights and the kings of the ground on the ground. They will be gathered together like prisoners in a pit. They will be confined to a dungeon. After many days, they will be punished. The moon will be put to shame and the sun disgraced because the Lord of armies will reign as king on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. And he will display his glory in the presence of his elders. So this is a very epic 
cosmic scale day. Not only are the, the kings of the ground, of the earth, subject to judgment, but the army of the heights in the heights. This phrase is referring to the, hel- the heavenly realms, the, the, the spiritual powers, all of which are subject to God's authority. And even the sun and the moon, which themselves are kind of icons of, of heavenly power and, and deity, they'll be outshined by God. And in Revelation 6, moving, pointing, going way forward, skipping way forward, uh, but Revelation 6 tells us that you know, all nations and all people from every station of life will face the judgment on that final day of the Lord. Since we're in, in, you know, that's Revelation, and that kind of brings us to the New Testament. Uh, and just to back it up a little bit more to the, the beginning of, of the New Testament, when Jesus comes on the scene, Babylon at that point is ancient history. However, you do have this new oppressive empire, the Romans, and the Jews are again long or still longing for the Messiah to come and bring a, a day of the Lord, another, you know, again, a Red Sea moment to deliver them from their oppressors, the Romans. And Jesus came on the scene and he claimed to be the Messiah, not just a Messiah. He claimed to be the Messiah. So, you know, what do you expect this Messiah to do? Put together an army and take on the Roman Empire and with the power of God on his side, totally wipe out all of Israel's problems and establish the throne and the kingdom on earth. Except that's it's not at all what Jesus did, is it? He didn't go after Rome. He went after the underlying problem that has contributed to the, that pattern over and over again. He, he went after the corrupted you know, power systems, um, both spiritual and human power system. He went after demons and after prideful, hypocritical leaders. But then, you know, he dug even deeper. He got down to the very root of the problem and he set out to defeat sin and death itself. Because at the core of all these problems is sin, which causes death. And he did it in the most unexpected of ways by dying. Uh, just not at all what the Jews were expecting or hoping for um, when the Messiah came. Isaiah 25, 8 actually makes a prediction about the Messiah saying that he would swallow up death once and for all. And 2 Timothy 1.10 says that that was fulfilled through Christ. However, you know, Christ, he did defeat sin and death on the cross. But this is where it gets tricky because, again, we, we get to where it's both present and future because the New Testament is, is very clear that Jesus will yet return one more time. Jesus was and is the Messiah, not just a Messiah. He's the Messiah. And his first coming, when he first came, that was really a day of the Lord, though just not in any, in any way how Israel was expecting it to look. His second coming will be the day of the Lord, the final, ultimate day of the Lord. Jesus said so himself. It's all throughout the, the rest of the New Testament that, you know, to look for Jesus' return. Uh, there's too many verses to, to read, um, but you will find it more referred to as the day of Jesus Christ uh, in the New Testament more than the day of the Lord. 
Uh, but anytime you see the New Testament writers talking about the day of Christ, the day of, of Jesus, it's, that's the day of the Lord. It's, it's connecting to the same concepts from the Old Testament. And again, it's, it's very clear in Revelation that there will be a final judgment for every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every king and every peasant, uh, every human and every angel, every spiritual being, every demon will stand before God in judgment. That's clear. <laughs> beyond that, a lot of the details beyond that are not so clear, and we'll get to that in a minute. But first, this, this kind of brings us to the good news, because there is still that flip side of the coin, remember. There's the, the judgment and the hope. And Isaiah kind of flips back and forth <laughs> when he's talking about the day of the Lord. He goes back and forth to both, both sides of the coin. And standing before God in judgment... <laughs> That side of the coin is a very scary thought. So how do we end up on the other side of that coin? And that's, of course, where Jesus comes in. When Jesus allowed himself to be sacrificed for our sins, that sacrifice was final. He said on the cross, he cried out, it is finished. He successfully, in that moment, took our place once and for all covering the penalty for our sins. And he stands today victorious as an intercessor. Talked about intercessor a couple weeks ago. He stands before God in judgment, uh, in place of our judgment. When we come before God, he'll say, Father, this one belongs to me. I took his judgment upon myself and he remains here in my kingdom. That's, that's amazing. That's the good news. God, you know, God sent Israel and Judah into exile, but he did spare a remnant. And eventually they returned from exile. They returned to Jerusalem and their partial restoration there, you know, when they were returned from, from exile, that was a foreshadowing of the final ultimate restoration of all humanity. Again, it's like what happens with Israel is a microcosm for what God is doing with the whole world. So let's look just briefly at a couple ways in which it looks like to live in God's kingdom on the other side of, of that uh, final day of the Lord. Uh, first of all, I, I told you I wanted to uh, come back to that first part of Isaiah 2 um, in verse 2. that says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it. I wanted to come back to this image. It's just too good to, to pass up. Because doesn't that, that image sound familiar? And I just, that's kind of a cool graphic. So I had to include that. So kind of that mountain uh, idea. The mountain of Yahweh's house at the top of the mountains. It's a high place where God dwells with humanity. It's, it's Eden. It's, it's a return to Eden, except with Eden, you had the mountain with rivers flowing out of it, streaming from it. And now you have rivers of nations streaming into it. People from all over the world will return to Eden. And not only that, you know, the, this stream of nations flowing inward, it's kind of like the reverse of the judgment on the Tower of Babylon when, when uh, the people 
were scattered and the, the judgment on Israel when the tribes were broken up and, and scattered throughout Assyria and Babylon. Now you have this regathering, this reunification of humanity. And we see that also in Mark uh, 13. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So let's talk about the day of the Lord, the second coming. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. It's that idea of the regathering. So that ultimate day of the Lord, the final day, is the ultimate fulfillment of the messianic hope. It will be a disastrous day for evil, because evil will be totally purged from heaven and from earth forever. But for God's people, it's the ultimate hope. It's going to bring an end to war, and people will no longer have, you know, Isaiah says, People won't even need their weapons. They'll change them into farming tools because there's no need for for weapons. There's going to be no sin, no death, no sickness. And and the light of God's glory will permeate everything and sustain everything everywhere for eternity. And all this is very exciting, isn't it? This is, you know, we have this anticipation. We await the second coming today with as much anticipation, or we should, as the Jews were awaiting the first coming of the Messiah. But with that in mind, you know, I think that kind of warrants a couple points of caution. Like I said, you know, a minute ago, the the details of how this is all going to play out in the end. A lot of times we read through, you know, Isaiah, Revelation, and a lot of it is is confusing, uh, can seem vague, or some of the details just simply aren't there. If you've ever read through the books of you know, Isaiah or the second half of Daniel or Revelation, you know exactly what I mean by that. It can be very challenging to read. And we're not, obviously, we don't have time this morning to get into all of those details, but Christ will come again. That much is clear. God will judge the world. That's clear. He will purge heaven and earth of evil and renew all of creation to exist in a state of holiness, in harmony with him, heaven and earth in harmony. Jesus reigning as our high king and all creatures living peacefully together under his rule. So that's the core truth that I believe, that we believe as a church, regardless of exactly how it happens and the order in which certain events take place. That's you know a subject of, of much debate and you'll find a wide variety of differing beliefs and opinions as to how to you know, interpret different parts of different prophecies and about stuff that hasn't happened yet. And it's definitely a, a worthwhile topic to study. Um, just because we can't go into all of it right now doesn't mean you know, I'm dismissing it as not worthwhile. Um, I by no means want to discourage you from actually you know, doing so yourself. But I would offer, again, just a couple points of caution. Um, Yeah, so these are the the three things. Remember the first coming, remember the unknown timing, and remember our calling. And this is this is my last my last bit of thoughts for you this morning. So first of all, remember the first time that, that Jesus came. And even though there were hundreds of prophecies about how that would happen and what he would do and how that would all uh look, the people who were looking for him for the most part, had completely the wrong expectations, even with all those prophecies. 
And Jesus ended up being pretty much the opposite of what they thought they needed and what they thought was being promised uh, through, through the covenants and through the prophecies. Because what they got was this nonviolent Bible nerd who fought spiritual forces of evil and pretty much ignored the problems that the Jews thought they needed him to fix uh, with the Romans. And we have a lot of prophecy about his second coming, and it's important to be familiar with what he said, um, primarily so we aren't led astray by false teachings or by you know false claims that someone is, is the Messiah. Um, however, I think it's also wise to kind of hold some specific details of, our, of how our expectations are for the final day somewhat loosely, because it, just looking at God's track record throughout the Old Testament, and especially with Jesus, he tends to be far more creative and surprising with his solutions to our problems than we expect him to be. And it's good to be sure of things. You know, some, some things, it's okay. It's, it's good to be, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that Jesus is coming back. Other things, it's okay to be a little less sure. You know, I think we need to be humble about how certain we can possibly be about things that haven't happened yet. I am, again, 100% certain that Jesus is coming back. I have some, you know, convictions and opinions, you know, of some of the, the finer details, but I'm okay with being a little bit less sure of, of, about how right I am about those things. And on that note, probably the most important detail, this is the second point up there, is just never even try to figure out exactly when this is going to happen. The, time, the timeline or the timing of when Jesus comes back he specifically says, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And in Mark 13, now concerning that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, only the Father. That's a loaded statement, but just it's a clear statement that no one will know the day or the hour. And despite this being so clear in what Jesus himself said, many people throughout history have attempted to make predictions about when it's going to happen. So just don't do that. Don't do it and don't pay any attention to anyone who does claim to. And then finally, remember our calling. Uh, I just want to say that you know, knowing that the day of the Lord is coming, <laughs> that's not an excuse or an invitation to just kind of sit back and watch the world burn. Will the world become a worse place before he comes back? Possibly. I don't know for sure. It could. But however, just as the Jews, when they were sent into exile, and we're in exile today, the New Testament talks about, the Jews were called still to live and work towards the greater good of Babylon. And while we're in exile, we are still called to pursue truth, to pursue beauty and goodness. during our time on earth, even though it at times might feel like an uphill battle to pursue those things. But Jesus set the example for how we should conduct ourselves, and he gave us the Holy Spirit to empower us to do so, because we can't do it on our own. But what the Holy Spirit makes possible is to live lives that bear the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are called to be light in the darkness so that more people, by seeing our light, can find their way to Jesus, who is the source 
of our life. And we're to be stewards of our time, of our resources, our families, the environment. We're to care for the needy people around us, widows, orphans, immigrants, addicts, sick, poor, homeless, and each other, our brothers and sisters. So let's remember those things. Let's focus on our calling. Let's certainly be Bible nerds while we do it and study eschatology in the end times and, and think about what that's going to be. But also, you know, not let that get so focused on that that it hinders us from what we're called, how we're called to live and be able to, you know, major on the majors and, and minor on the minors and walk humbly together as brothers and sisters in the freedom that was bought for us with the ultimate price. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you this morning for paying that ultimate price that we can look towards final judgment, not with fear, even though that's what we deserve, but with hope and with the assurance that comes with knowing that you are our intercessor. You are our defender. And because of you, we can live in your presence forever. It's an incredible gift, Lord. I pray that we would look to your second coming with anticipation and with readiness, but that we would also be able to focus on the here and the now and find the balance in that. Lord, show us how we can be lights, not just here in a room full of lights, but in your, in your world and in the darkness where there are so many people you want to draw to you. Lord, use us in our families and our communities, we pray in Jesus' name. So um, I said a couple weeks ago that David was going to teach us everything there 